FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Hello, thanks for joining us on Mayo Clinic Talks. My name is Dr. Maggie Redfield. I'm the director of the Circulatory Failure Program and one of the heart failure cardiologists here at Mayo. I'm happy to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Soon Park, one of our leading heart failure surgeons and uh, international expert on the use of left ventricular assist devices. Today, we're going to be discussing the basics of left ventricular assist device therapy for patients with congestive heart failure. Soon, today, uh, we here at Mayo and others are using LVADs as bridge to transplant. We're using them as destination therapy for patients with heart failure and uh, for bridge to recovery. We'll touch a little bit on each of these uses, but I'd like to just start off with you reviewing for us what are the currently approved, FDA-approved devices that we can offer patients with heart failure. Sure. Good morning. Um, those uh, are great questions, and I'm excited to cover uh, those questions. In terms of currently imp- approved uh, implantable left ventricular assist device uh, for uh, long-term use, uh, we have HeartMate uh, 1, HeartMate 2, and uh, perhaps hardware will be c- uh, available soon. Uh, the HeartMate 1 being a pulse-type pump, which uh, used to be a, a the workhorse, but it's no longer being used uh, because I think continuous flow pumps such as HeartMate 2 and HeartRare seems to be much better. So I'd say r- currently HeartMate 2 at approved for destination therapy as well as the BTT is the main workhorse. And HeartWare just completed uh, uh, clinical trials for uh, DT and BTT and is uh, expected to be approved soon. So continuous flow pumps are uh, uh, emerging as the mainstay of bad therapy and there'll be many more new devices coming soon. Right, and the hardware has gotten a favorable review from the FDA. What's the ad, uh, potential advantages and, and weaknesses compared to the HeartMate 2, which is by far the more established uh, device on the market right yeah. now? I think it's hard to uh, truly compare uh, what the outcomes are. In case of bridge therapy to transplantation, uh, it was a compared to the uh, registry of Inomex data, and so it was hard to do. Now, in destination therapy, it was a randomized uh, in a two-to-one two manner, so we'd be able to really compare the uh, complication durability and other things between hardware and, and HeartMate 2 uh, as a destination therapy device, and uh, we are looking forward to that. Right. My hunch is that, uh, that clinical difference is going to be uh, not that dramatic, the hardware is potentially a little bit smaller, uh, implanted within the pericardium, uh, and thus may offer some surgical advantages. I'm not sure it makes a true that much difference in, okay. in patient outcome. Uh, the right now, HeartMate 2 could also uh, be implanted mostly in the thorax within pericardium, and into left the pleural space. Yeah. And hardware uh, for uh, geographic uh, layout of the device and good uh, flow. Uh, I think sometimes you have to get into depth of pleural space. So a true benefit to the patient uh, from surgical benefit, I think it's small. Right. Okay. Good. Well, let's let's start far first with talking a little bit about bridge to transplant. Uh, there are approximately 2,500 cardiac transplants performed in the United States per year. Well, um, 
what percentage of those patients will receive an LVAD as bridge to transplant? Sure. The reason that we used uh, bridge therapy to transplant uh, is uh, to avoid waiting list mortality. And so in terms of what percent of uh, the transplant eligible patient come to transplant via route of LVAD uh, varies from center to center and also depending on local uh, donor uh, availability issue. And if you look at overall, one of the, most of the major centers, uh, the uh, about 50% of patients would come to transplant uh, via route of uh, LVAD as destination, um, as a bridge therapy to transplant. Uh, overall, I would say maybe somewhere in the range of about 30%. And many patients get on the list and get devices uh, uh, and supported as a bridge level transplant and exactly when they should get transplanted on the issue. So there are a number of people who are uh, supported on VAD longer, uh, for a longer and longer period, and it's, it's really hard to know. But right now, we'd say about 50% of patients uh, at uh, most of the major centers would uh, get a VAD as a bridge therapy transplant. And um, overall, do you feel that uh, uh, the use of a VAD, patients who are awaiting transplant and receive a VAD, do they do as well as patients who do not receive an sure. LVAD? Again, it's hard to uh, compare exact outcomes because uh, people who, patients who end up getting VAD tend to be sicker. And that's why they get devices, because uh, we are worried that they're, they may uh, die while waiting for organ. So it's hard to know. But uh, we, when you look at uh, uh, the ISHLT registry, uh, the e- in the days of pulsatile uh, ventricular assist device support, their post-transplant outcome was clearly much worse than the people who came to transplant directly. There could be a number of reasons, but uh, I think the number one reason was still these people are very, very sick. With the continuous flow devices, the outcome is still inferior, but uh, very minimally compared to overall transplant outcome. If you compare uh, the people who, uh, from the onset, again, the w- in people who got, went to transplant, we weren't accounting for their waiting list mor- mortality or the potential waiting list mortality. So, uh, so if you look at overall then perhaps uh, the BTT therapy would uh, save uh, lives. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's one of the the tragedies of transplantation is in the past having these patients die on the list, and this is an incredibly powerful therapy to offer that very sick group who are uh, not surviving to transplantation despite the use of inotropes. So as you say, they may be sicker, and that's why perhaps their outputs aren't quite as good, uh, but uh, the impact on getting patients through to transplant has, has certainly been dramatic. Um, Let's switch uh, gears a little bit and talk about destination therapy. I think destination VAD therapy is a new heart failure therapy. I think a lot of cardiologists are still struggling to integrate this therapy into their their toolbox or their algorithm. Um, Let's just start by talking quite briefly about what types of heart failure patients should be considered for destination therapy. Sure. I think it may be reasonable to to redefine and uh, clarify what destination therapy means. It's a uh, term that's labeled uh, for uh, the use of implantable ventricular assist device, uh, and it's not a interim step, but it's a uh, uh, the long-term support 
So patient would uh, die uh, being supported on ventricular assist device. So it's a lifelong therapy. Um, and uh, as you know, the uh, supply and demand of people who need a heart transplant versus the number of heart deaths available. There's such a large disparity between those numbers. So uh, the heart transplantation, even though it's effective, will never really be able to address large number of patients who need heart replacement therapy. So really, destination therapy is would be truly an important therapy that would make a, a difference in, in many people who are dying from uh, heart failures. Now, uh, who should get destination therapy? Um, I think right now it's approved for people in NYHA functional class 4, possibly 3B, but mostly 4. Uh, and so these uh, the people who tend to have uh, uh, ejection fraction less than about 25%. Their uh, peak VO2, if they're able to do it, would be less than uh, 12 range. Uh, and these are people who had uh, frequent hospital admissions. Uh, so I think if they had one or two uh, hospital admissions due to uh, heart failure, then I think those are people should be considered, I would think. Absolutely. So low ejection fraction, for sure. Patients who have been optimally treated but are not doing well, certainly class four, although um, you often don't want to think about an LVAD when you absolutely need it. You want to be preparing the patient, introducing the concept. So certainly appropriate to consider approaching the subject with a patient who's class three and maybe even referring them so that the process of investigation and consideration uh, can be can be started. Um, Certainly, hospitalizations, uh, uh, your mortality with heart failure increases dramatically according to number of hospitalizations that you've had. Um, a lot of cardiologists don't have cardiopulmonary exercise testing available, uh, but it's a really important tool, as you, as you point out. Often, patients with heart failure will kind of slowly cut back on their activities, so some sort of provocative test is, uh, is often very helpful in defining how symptomatic patients uh, really are. Sometimes even just a six-minute walk distance that everybody can do, when that starts getting below 350 meters or so, uh, certainly a red flag that the patients aren't doing as well. As you know, when we started the the Advanced Heart Failure Clinic, Mm -hmm. I think being able to uh, have some of this uh, uh, bad patient come to Heart Failure Clinic and having people at earlier stages see what patients are like when they are supported on ventricular assist device compared to people who are in NIHF functional class 4, I think that has been a very positive thing. Right. And, uh, and so I think in, uh, that since heart failure is a continued process and it's a spectrum of disease uh, with expected progression, I absolutely agree with you that having uh, destination therapy being part of uh, the therapeutic armamentarium right. for patients and, and doctors to think about, I think is very, very important. Right. Now, few patients are transplanted who are who are over 65 years of age, um, except in some special cases. What's the age limit uh, for consideration of an LVAD? Right now, in general, people are thinking about 75 as reasonable uh, uh, cutoff point. Clearly, uh, that uh, we've done people who are older, uh, and it has to be individualized right. uh, as well. Obesity is often a contraindication or a reason patients are not deemed eligible for, for transplantation. Uh, where does obesity play in in the and sort of entry criteria for LVAD? Well, I think that's going to be still uh, being, uh, being evaluated and being worked out. But, uh, Maggie, I have to uh, uh, remind ourselves that 
medical ethics is dramatically different now mm-hmm. because uh, in with the uh, severe mismatch between donor and recipient in case of heart transplant, donor heart becomes even more precious, and we, there's a uh, social obligation to maximize the benefit of these ver- precious organs in terms of allocation and recipient selection. With the uh, destination therapy, device could be uh, manufactured and no longer a device, though expensive, mm-hmm. is no longer a precious, scarce organ right. like heart. Right. So the, all these uh, important criteria we set up uh, to somehow uh, ration, ration the precious organ is not true to its fullest extent. So we have to reevaluate right. as time goes by. But I think we, as a medical community, we have to readjust and rethink that we can't be dominated by uh, transplant-related medical ethics. We have to redefine some of the uh, allocation scheme and uh, resource utilization. So certainly for consideration of a patient burn LVAD, obesity still may be a marker of less good outcomes, but the restriction criteria would be much less rigid for consideration of an LVAD. Correct. Right. Okay. Um, Many of our end-stage patients with heart failure have had previous thoracotomies, sometimes more than one. Is that a, a relative or an absolute contraindication to uh, an LVAD? Sure. Minor uh, contraindication. In fact, right now, current practice at Mayo, uh, I think up to about 50 to 70 percent of patients uh, 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 had prior uh, cardiac surgery uh, multiple times right. before. So I have say to say a relative contraindication. Okay. Um, and um, what role do risk scores, just real briefly, play? Uh, should, should cardiologists be calculating a Seattle heart failure risk score, uh, helping them decide when it's time to refer a patient for an LVAD? I think, I mean, the, of course, uh, your opinion as a uh, cerebral cardiologist would be much better than a surgeon's opinion. But I think a heart failure score, the, some kind of perspective uh, model that we could apply to predict what the mortality uh, uh, would be uh, had it not gone through bad therapy would be helpful. Um, and some of the heart, heart failure scores and Seattle heart failure scores or the HeartMate 2 scores uh, are helpful, but I don't think they should be the only criteria. So it sure. could be a... a Additional information, right, tool that you could use. Yeah, you could use. I think we all uh, look for that crystal ball, and a perfect one doesn't exist, but things like the cardiopulmonary exercise test, the six-minute walk, the number of hospitalizations, the Seattle heart failure model tool that's out there on the web, all these things are helpful in... uh, getting the cardiologist uh, to understand uh, that this patient is quite high risk and it's time to consider something as a VAD. We've talked about uh, bridge to transplant. We've talked about destination. Uh, We've emphasized that patients who are class 3, class 4 on standard therapy, having hospitalizations, poor exercise tolerance, uh, low six-minute walk distance, um, also maybe experienced deterioration in the renal function, uh, despite maximal therapy, uh, those are the keys that it's time to start thinking about LVAD. We talked about some of the restrictions that are operant in selecting patients for transplantation may not be all applicable uh, to consideration of LVAD. Uh, Certainly patients up to 75 years uh, of age can be considered. Um, That obesity, uh, again, still may be associated with less Less good outcomes uh, is not as critical a factor, uh, so that the 
thinking about patients for transplantation and thinking about patients for LVAD, some similarities, uh, but some important differences. Let's uh, finish by talking a little bit about bridge to recovery. Sure. Um, How many patients do experience recovery of heart function with an LVAD, and and who are those patients? So um, recovery is a very... uh, uh, interesting uh, topic, uh, uh, clinically very important, and also research-wise, uh, it's a very important topic. Uh, right now, I think we understand very little about it. Harefields Group in England have uh, done a wonderful job of using some novel drugs, uh, uh, such as uh, a beta agonist and other things, to uh, stimulate uh, the uh, failing heart in, in terms of recovery. And I think uh, uh, that's wonderful, but uh, still small in number compared to overall that implant and recovery we see. And uh, somehow it has not been well reproduced by other centers, perhaps lack of enthusiasm in terms of trying to recover things like that. But uh, the uh, from my personal experience, uh, um, that some of the people with acute uh, myocardial process, uh, they, uh, they sometimes they recover spontaneously. Yeah, so myocarditis, yeah. yeah. And, and it would be a good, good setting. So uh, it's really great to see some of the people uh, recover their heart, but uh, I think we still need a lot more science uh, right. uh, and a lot more uh, research before uh, it becomes a clinical mainstay uh, therapy. Right. So uh, an area of investigation, trying right. to make it more common, but for right now, patients with fulminant myocarditis, patients perhaps with fulminant peripartum cardiomyopathy um, are the the people we've seen with the potential for recovery. I mean, not, but clearly uh, Emma Burks and uh, uh, Sir McDeo-Kub have done a great job of uh, using uh, very intense medical therapy that they were able to recover uh, idiopathic and even in ischemics and not as successfully. Uh, uh, and I, but I think uh, it's something to emulate, but it has not been well reproduced at those centers. Right. Right now. And that brings us to our final comment. What, what does the future hold? Uh, you talked about research for expanding the recovery population. Certainly there are some efforts with cell therapy in conjunction with VAD that are, are still investigational. Mm-hmm. And, and newer devices, what are the, what's the newer device sure, going to sure. look like, the next generation? Now, so with the continuous flow pump, uh, with the, the uh, blood is pro- being propelled not in a pulse-tile manner, uh, but that we didn't think it was uh, uh, possible to support human circulation with the fragile cells or things in a, in a continuous flow manner, but we know it's possible. We still have to work on uh, a blood contact interface, so we've got to minimize thromboembolic risks, hemolysis, and other issues. And then with the... Uh, Next-generation devices that are um, the rotor is magnetically levitated uh, without any uh, contact points, uh, larger uh, clearance uh, between the rotor and the housing, uh, they may hold a real promise. Uh, So uh, now with the mechanical durability with the HeartMate 2, which has a a contact point, uh, uh, the bearing that could wear uh, uh, over time, it's proven to be uh, durable up to probably 10 years or, mm-hmm. or in a bench and possibly humans up to six years and beyond right now. So I think uh, the mechanical is fine. We have to overcome this uh, uh, blood contact uh, surfaces and hematological uh, disturbance to try to minimize that. Uh, and so ne- next set of uh, devices will be uh, focusing more on those issues and smaller devices. 
And uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the device going in patients with the NIHF functional class 4 was clearly the right path to be, uh, that we had to take in the past. But as the device gets smaller and, and outcomes better, as we move it towards a healthier population, that, that uh, we are putting uh, uh, the therapy into uh, other groups, perhaps not for the reasons of uh, longevity alone, but uh, for the improvement of quality of life and things like that. So sure. I think for the next uh, the one to two decade would be very, very exciting from a mechanical uh, support uh, a point of view. Now, mechanical support is very simple. All you have to is propel the blood somehow, and that's the easiest step. But uh, that along with that, uh, other bio, playing on the biology of stem cells and gene therapy and uh, magic uh, uh, drugs, it's uh, the therapy for heart failure seems to all of a sudden becomes a very, very exciting. And we could uh, solve the immediate heart failure problem with the mechanical pump, but then we could have more time to work out the physiology and, and, uh, and research. So it's, it's becoming a very, very exciting area. I agree. I think uh, for right now, uh, this therapy was a promise that's been realized. Uh, now our challenge uh, in the com- heart failure community is to make sure we uh, properly identify candidates who will be uh, benefiting from this therapy and then to keep abreast of all the exciting advances uh, that you referred to. Thanks so much for joining us well, here today, uh, soon. Well, thank you. This is wonderful, and, and I hope that this uh, helped uh, the uh, f- patients and, 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 and physicians and, and, and other healthcare providers. Great. Thank you, Maggie. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Visit theheart.org to find out more.